DeKalb, isn't it? I, uh, my name is Gary Franz. I'm uh, representing one of your missionary partners. I'm with Good News Jail and Prison Ministry. I'm the Vice President for International Ministries, and we have uh, ministry in 25 countries. We support and work with uh, 200 nationals in those countries to help them uh, go into the jails and prisons to reach uh, them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and disciple them. Um, there's 10 million people in the world that are incarcerated at any given time, and oh, hundreds of million who are affected by incarceration, uh, even as we sit here this morning. And so that's our goal. We also have uh, work in the U.S. and uh, have about uh, 80 chaplains working in 45 uh, county jails and prisons throughout uh, the U.S. in 20, uh, 22 states, I think it is. So. It's my privilege to be here, and I've, I've come into association with Crossview over the last couple of years and enjoyed getting to know your missions chairman, Larry Mix, and I'm telling you, uh, it has been a wonderful time, this conference, and I mentioned yesterday with the missionaries at a meeting that we had, this is like the most organized uh, conference I've been at in 40 years, so, and uh, just, uh, amen. And um, I'm not just talking about logistics, I'm talking about vision, preparation, and prayer. And uh, your missions team uh, has been preparing to see God do a great work in this uh, conference and this weekend for months and even a, a few, uh, more than, more than a, almost more than a year. And, and that shows, and we're so excited to just be a part of this. Um, I also love your pastor, enjoyed getting to know him. Last time I was here, he's on sabbatical, uh, but the time before, we were able to get some time together. I love his heart for this community, his heart for you, and I'm so thankful that God has placed him here uh, to serve you, and I'm thankful that you're taking care of him, that you sent him on a sabbatical uh, to refresh and recharge and re-energize in order to go into this next season. And so, Jeff, we're just so appreciative for what you're doing here and so thankful for the way you're leading uh, these people of God uh, in missions. Um, amen. Um, I'm, I'm married and uh, have four children and four grandchildren. And my wife would have been here with me this morning, but her mother fell in Florida about three weeks ago. And she's down tending uh, to her mom's uh, health needs at this time. Uh, so we'll have to get her here with me at, uh, at a time in the future. We actually live in West Chicago. We work remotely. Uh, I'm one of, the, one of three Americans on our team, so uh, all the rest of our team is located around the world. So I do a lot of, I did Zoom meetings before COVID, okay? I was really cool. <laughs> and, uh, and we work with them and then we travel internationally and it's, uh, it's a real blessing. Um, so I've, I just feel so privileged to be able to open God's word with you this morning uh, to talk and focus on this idea of missions. And, uh, and I know missions. I, I, I was a missionary and, uh, and then a missions administrator, and then I was in pastoral ministry for many years. And uh, I know when you say the word missions, you get a mixed reaction uh, in a, a group this size. And what I want to do today is I want to make missions very practical because I believe missions is not something for some exclusive group to run off and do on their own, but it's something that we're all uh, uh, called to and, uh, and, uh, and, and called to be a part of in a unique and powerful way. My favorite, um, my favorite uh commission, if you will, or great commission in the Bible is John 20, 21. That's where Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. As the Father sent me, so send I you. See, God sent Jesus in a particular way, and when Jesus left, he told his disciples that were in the room, and in effect, every disciple that was to come, that you're to go in the same way that I went. Now, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about people who have influenced my life, who've had a great influence in my life and um, through the years. And one was my father. And I had a great father and mother, and I loved them dearly. And then 
Uh, I had a ministry director uh, and when I was in elementary school, and I had a ministry director at college, and I had a father-in-law that really poured into my life when I met my wife and, and got married. And I was thinking about how did they influence me? What were the ways that they shaped my life? And basically, influencing people comes down to about two things, right? There's the spoken words, and there's doing life together, right? And if somebody in your life has influenced you, you're like, you know, they've spoken some things, you've listened to them, you've heard what they've had to say, and they, they have meaningful words for your life and how to do life. And then they actually do life in front of you, and you observe them, and you're like, they don't just talk about this stuff, they actually, they actually do it. And they do it in a particular way, and we kind of watch that. I was sitting at breakfast, my, two of my grandkids are with me right now because their kitchen is being remodeled, and uh, so I wake up every morning and I, to very happy faces. And, um, and I was sitting there having breakfast, and, and my two-year-old grandson, Jackson, was there, and he was watching me. And he's watching how I ate, and he started eating in the same way that I was eating. And it reminded me of the influence that we have, the words that we say, and how we do life. We teach and we model. We teach through our words and we model with our life. And it's this way that Jesus teaches us and models for us what it means to be sent by God. And this morning I want to look at a passage, a very familiar passage, if you've been around the church very long, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And I want to look at this passage and, and on this occasion, I believe Jesus is teaching and modeling for his disciples what it means to be sent by God. And there's four characteristics that I see in this passage of those who are on mission with Jesus. And this is for every believer. And so would you join with me in looking in John chapter 4? And if you want to open the text, uh, we'll uh, be looking at it, uh, uh, kind of picking through it a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole passage because of time this morning. It's 42 verses, and, um, but, uh, but we'll be talking about it and, and, and looking at it as we go through this morning. So as we look in God's Word, would you just uh, take a minute uh, and join me in a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful uh, for the worship this morning. Uh, for the power of your presence in this place, that we can pray to you and that you hear us. And uh, Lord, you've given us your word, and we, we, have, we get to open it this morning, we get to hear your voice, and I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears uh, to hear what you have for us, to see you in new and fresh ways, that we might be changed, that we'd be transformed by the power of your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come into the text and we find that Jesus is traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. And he passes through a region called Samaria around noontime. This is in the first nine verses. And he, he passes through a place called Samaria. He comes to a unique place in Israel's history. It's Jacob's well. And there's a Samaritan woman there drawing water in the middle of the day in the heat of the sun around noontime. He asks her for a drink. She's surprised that he would ask because a Jew would not do that. And in these first nine verses, I want to share with you that um, the, the, this principle, the first principle, four principles, people on mission with Jesus are, or people on, Jesus, people on mission with Jesus love radically like him. Now, it's not, uh, it's not immediately noticeable to people, the shock factor that is taking place in this story. And what Jesus is doing is shocking to those that are around him in, in unique ways, and we have to understand the full context to see this. You see, the first way that it's shocking is that the path that Jesus chose. Now, there are three ways to get to Galilee from Judea. There was the way to the, to the west, over by uh, the Mediterranean Sea. There's a way to the east, and there's the way straight through Samaria. The way through Samaria was the way that the Jews would avoid at all costs because it went through this people group, ethnic group, the Samaritans, whom they hated. 
They were half-breeds. They had intermarried with the Assyrians in 600 B.C., and uh, they were half-breeds. They, they were, uh, to be among them as a Jew was to make yourself unclean, which would separate you from God, and you have to get to clean yourself spiritually again to get connected with God. And so they would avoid this path at all costs. But, so this is shocking to any Jew, proper Jew, that here this rabbi, Jesus, would choose this path to go forward. But the other, other thing that's shocking in this pas passage is the person that he chose to talk to. He chose to talk to a Samaritan, which is one, shocking for the same reasons that I just talked about. But he also chose to talk to a woman. But it wasn't just any woman. This was a woman of ill repute. You see, it was known, the reason why she was at the well at noontime in the heat of the day is she was avoiding all the people that come typically in the morning or in the evening uh, because she was an outcast of society. She had had five marriages and she was living with another person. And she was looked down on. And why would a rabbi, a teacher, a religious leader like Jesus talk to somebody like this? This was shocking. But what Jesus was demonstrating was a radical love for people. This was not a fluke in Jesus' life. Jesus often spent time with sinners and outcasts of his day, and it frustrated religious leaders. He didn't come uh, for the righteous. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. When he went to Zacchaeus' home, a hated tax collector, people were whispering about him. What is he doing with this person? This guy's ripped us off. We hate him. He's not a righteous person. Why would he hang out with somebody like that? Jesus' actions were sacrificial, countercultural, selfless, and intentional. See, Christians love their enemies. They will know, they will know we are Christians by our love. And it's counterculture, it's cultural. And those who are on mission with Jesus recognize that they have to love the world in a radical way, the way he loved the world. In 1994, the country of Rwanda was, uh, in, to uh, was in, in total tumult. Uh, uh, the government, and there was fighting, infighting, and got different government groups and people groups. And um, what ensued in, beginning in April of 1994 was one of the most uh, horrific genocides in the history of the world. A million people were murdered in 100 days, beginning in April of 1994. It was a genocide. It was the Hutu people trying to eliminate the Tutsi people. And the reason for the horror of it is it wasn't just that they were killed. It was the way they were killed and the brutality and the hatred that was shown in this bigotry and this genocide. A young pastor was 24 years old. His name was Pius, and he was a Tutsi. He was on the wrong side of this conflict. And he, was, he hid in, in various places and in the dark rooms, and he was just waiting for them to find him, to kill him. He hid with other people, and, and, and he was beaten within one breath of his life at one point by a Hutu that found him along the road, and miraculously his life was spared. And he was separated from his family. He was uh, trying to get out of the country when this uh, conflict was beginning before it was known it would be such a genocide. And after, as the genocide went along, he went to look for his family, and he found 12 of his family members had been murdered and burned and horrifically torn apart. Well, the conflict was resolved at 100 days, and uh, the Hutu rebellion was put down. And the government took over and started to imprison these Hutus who had murdered people and put them in prisons, and they built these prisons. And uh, Pius, uh, having seen his, his family, he was a bit disillusioned at what was taking place, and he was in shock. And uh, he began to go back to his church that he was pastoring and work with the people a little bit. And, um, and God began, began to show him comfort and 
and peace in the midst of that storm in the coming months. And then one day, the call of God came to him very clearly. And God called him and said, I, I want you to go to the prison and preach the gospel to the Hutu murderers that are in there. He was like, no way. No way. I'm not going to those prisons. And he resisted the call. And, uh, and God came to him again, spoke to him very clearly, I want you to go to those prisons and start to preach the gospel to the Hutu members. And after several times like that, he finally went. And to his surprise, as he went in and he obeyed the Lord and he went behind the bars and encountered those Hutu murders, his heart was full of love and compassion for those murderers of his people, Ruth. And God did an incredible work in his life, and he loved radically. And since 1994, he's been going into prisons and sharing the love of Christ because he obeyed the call of God to love radically. This is the type of radical love that God calls us to. Let me ask you this question. Where is Jesus leading you to demonstrate his radical love? You see, we're all on mission, right? All of us are called to go as Jesus went. And there's places in your life that Jesus wants you to go. Maybe it's a family member who's unlovable. You've shared the gospel. They hate you because you're a Christian now or they're, they're dismissive of you. They insult you. Maybe it's a boss who's harsh, has unrealistic demands. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's someone on the other side of the tracks. Where is Jesus giving you opportunity to demonstrate his his radical love you see we're all called to be on mission like jesus jesus demonstrated radical love the story goes on and jesus starts this conversation with this samaritan woman in verse 10 and i'm just going to give you the cliff notes and i i met a few people in from academia yesterday i know that's not a, a healthy word in academia and i'm not saying i know anything about cliff notes but I heard a rumor one time, I had a college roommate uh, who told me what they were like, okay? And I think today you don't do cliff notes anymore, right? You just Google stuff, right? But uh, anyway, let me give you the cliff notes of this story here. So Jesus sits down and has a conversation with this woman. And she's, of course, surprised that he would even want to interact with her. And he, 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 he tells her that he could give her this living water, that there's this, this, this water, and he's speaking spiritually to her, that, that he could quench the thirst of her life. And they engage in this conversation about life and spiritual matters, and he reveals to her that he knows that she's had five husbands and she's living with a man that's not her husband currently, and this shocks her. She indicates to him that she is waiting for the Messiah, and she knows that the Messiah is coming when he comes, he will tell all things. She, she was a seeker. She was not content with her life. And her behavior was, was not that she was such a bad person. She just had this thirst that she couldn't fill with things of this world. And Jesus knew that. And he comes along and he starts to share with her uh, this great truth. And when she says that, that she knows the Messiah is coming, that she had heard this, he says to her, I am he. I am the Messiah. And he reveals himself to her. This is an incredible story. And she becomes a believer through this encounter. And, and you can read, I trust you'll read the story and review it later. But here's what we learn in this, in this passage and what Jesus is demonstrating for us about people who are on mission. See, people who are on mission with Jesus focus in on spiritual opportunity. See, Jesus says, it's not, it's, it's not surprising, in verse 35, he says, do, not, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest. This is an incredible statement. Jesus is saying, you know what? There are people who are spiritually ready to receive the gospel. And Jesus is, in effect, telling his disciples, you know what, if you're going to be on mission with me, you need to focus in 
on spiritual opportunity. And this woman at the well is a spiritual opportunity. She's seeking, and God and his and his sovereignty has led us to this woman so that today would be the day of salvation for her. And if we're on mission with Jesus, we're looking for those spiritual opportunities uh, and focusing in on them. There are two qualifiers that Jesus makes about what the harvest looks like. He says the, har- the, 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 har- the fields are white unto harvest, that they're ready to be harvested, But there's two qualifiers about this. The first is location-oriented. You want to know where there's spiritual opportunity? Look no further than the Great Commission, right? It's location-specific. What does Jesus say? He said, you'll be my witnesses in Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is saying there's spiritual opportunity in all of those places, And I'm sending you into those places. And right now he's sitting in Samaria. That that should not be lost on us. And he's saying, look, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. The fields are white on the harvest. And we're to focus on this. Christianity was never supposed to be for me, my four, and no more. This is not something where it's just supposed to be a Christian clique and we sit here. It's It's always going out further to the next step to multiply the beauty of the gospel that has happened in our lives, in other people's lives, and it's location-specific. I remember my freshman year at Wheaton College. I had to read some books for Christian thought class, and I didn't look at the cliff notes. I read the books, and one of the books I had to read was Shadow of the Almighty, which was the journals of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary martyr, but he had been a student at Wheaton College, and he wrote his journals, and I was reading this book for my Christian thought class my freshman year, and for the first time in my life, I was gripped by the fact, and I fully understood, that there were people living in the world that would be born, would live their life day in and day out, would have children, and would have grandchildren, and would die, and would never encounter a Christian or a church in their entire life that they would be locked in a culture that had no Christian witness. Can you imagine that? I can't even imagine it. Like, I've been, I was in the church since I was a baby, and my parents poured into me, and people poured into me. But there were people, and it was the first time that it gripped my heart. I grew up in a missions church. I went to missions conferences like this. I heard great missionary speakers, and it never hit me till I read that book. And I thought, and I remember it gripping my heart and burdening me. And I'm like, I want to do something about that. I want to make a change in the world. Would the Lord use me? Are you gripped by that? That there are locations today, there are literally billions of people who have no opportunity to hear the gospel? So it's location-oriented, this idea of the spiritual opportunity. But it's also life experience oriented You see, it's life experience or circumstance oriented. That's the second aspect of of the fields being white to harvest. In Matthew 25, when they're they're separating the sheep and the goats, and and Jesus says, um, "When when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you took me in. And when I was sick, you visited me. And when I was in prison, you, you visited me. You helped me. Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these brothers, you did it unto me. What was Jesus saying? What is the purpose of that passage? I would suggest to you this is another orientation of the white harvest field. You see, because life circumstances and experiences drive people to be ready to receive the gospel. Why was this woman so prepared to receive the gospel? Because her life was a train wreck, and she had a thirst and a hunger, and she didn't know how to satisfy it, and she tried to do it on her own, and she couldn't do it. And when Jesus came along and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in essence to her, and all meaning is found in me, and I'll satisfy that thirst, and what you've been missing is a relationship with your creator and with me. And when Jesus said that, it solved everything. And there's something about the circumstances of life that open people's hearts 
to the gospel. We work in jails and prisons, and one of the things that I say about that, and, and you can say this about any of these circumstances that Jesus describes in Matthew 25, is when somebody gets in, lands in jail and prison, they're not, they're not sitting there thinking about, where am I going to take my next vacation? They're not thinking about, you know, I was thinking about those new Hondas that are coming out or those electric cars that they're talking about. Maybe I'll pick up one of them. They're not thinking about any of that. Especially with the first time that they go to jail, you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, what in the world? How did I get here? You know, when somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, they're not thinking about going to the Bahamas. Uh, they're thinking about, how in the world am I going to overcome this? What if this takes my life? And these are opportunities, life circumstances that push people to a point where they're ready to receive the gospel. I pastored in Orlando, Florida, uh, an EV free church on the east side of town, and we always used to kind of joke about competing with Disney and with the beach, and, um, and uh, because we did, actually. But, uh, <laughs> so it was kind of a sick joke and sort of sad, actually, but... Here's the thing. I, I remember, I remember, you know, I preached most weeks, like most pastors do, and I remember regularly trying to convince people that they had a problem. Like I know they have a problem, right? And we know, we know, right? Those of us who are believers, we know they have a spiritual problem that needs to be fixed. And I remember trying, <laughs> with all my heart, trying to do it. Like, ah, we're going off to the beach. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Or we're going here. And I, I don't have any problem with going to the beach. Believe me, I didn't preach against going to the beach. That's not what I did in Orlando. But my point is, is they, they, they were more interested and focused on the things of this world than spiritual things until, until their daughter died, uh, sadly and tragically until they lost their job, until their marriage started to fall apart, until their kids started getting addicted to drugs and going in a direction they weren't happy about. You know what, when they started hitting and their forehead on those brick walls, all of a sudden their ears were turned, tuned. Where, is, there, is there anything that can help me? Is there any power greater? Because I don't think I'm doing life right. And that's what this passage is talking about. And when Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest, he's saying, you know, there are people in life circumstances who are ready to receive the gospel. And there's people in locations that I've prepared that I want to send you who will receive the gospel. And, uh, and those who are on mission with Jesus are looking for those spiritual opportunities. We uh, have a program called Tra Trauma Healing trauma healing studies that we do. And there are eight small, it's a small group experience, it's an eight-week program. You know, people who are incarcerated, 70 to 80% of the men have experienced violence or sexual abuse. And 95 to 99% of the women who are incarcerated have experienced uh, sexual uh, or, uh, or some type of violence in their life. And so we use this uh, program called uh, Trauma Healing because, and it starts with their trauma, recognizing what their life experience is. And then it says, you know, the only way you can deal with that trauma is through a Savior who died on the cross for you. And it leads them through that, but it identifies the trauma. Recently in Azalco Prison in El Salvador, 100 uh, young men graduated from that program. Uh, they went through that program. 33 new believers came from that program. 33% return rate for those of you who do investment, you know, counseling. 33%. Why? Because all of those kids, they were juveniles in their late teens and early 20s, because their life has hit the wall. And they're looking for answers, and they're open to spiritual answers. And so we need to be looking for these types of spiritual realities. I was so excited last night at the banquet, and if you missed the banquet, I don't know if it was video or if, if those videos are going to be available or that type of thing. I guess I think on the, on the website, you can look. So, so uh, a young couple, the Hours, is that how you say their name? The Hours who, who went to the Czech Republic uh, recently, and uh, I was so excited to hear them describe what they're doing and, and how they're there, and that God took them from visiting churches and avoiding churches that talked about missions because they said, okay, 
while they were looking for churches to actually taking them to the field. And now they're planting themselves in a place where there's less than 1% evangelical. My understanding about the Czech Republic is the least evangelized country in all of Europe. And God has placed them there, and they're just beginning in a location. And they're going to be looking for people who are open to the gospel. And this church is a part of that. And you could be a part of that. You're looking for spiritual opportunities. So where are you focused in on spiritual opportunities? Do you have a place? Do you have a ministry? Do you have people? Do you have a list? You say, you know what? I have a friend or I have a neighbor who just found out of a certain diagnosis. I, I have, do you have a list of people who say, I wonder what, how God would, I'm going to pray for them and maybe God would have me help them in some way. You see, we can all be on mission with Jesus and focus in on spiritual opportunities. But sometimes we're too busy looking at our 401ks, washing our cars, you know, improving our homes. I mean, really, let's, let's just be honest. You might as well be honest at church, right? And, I, and I'm going to be honest with you. you know, sometimes I'm, too, I'm more obsessed about those things in moments of my life and not focused in on spiritual opportunities. But people on mission with Jesus, you see, they, they always come back to spiritual opportunities. They focus in, and they're looking for ways that God can use them to bring people to Christ. So there's a third thing. So the story continues, and, uh, and uh, the disciples, where are the disciples in all this? Because Jesus was traveling with the disciples. Well, the disciples were off looking for some lunch, okay? So they didn't go to the well or stay with Jesus at the well. They were looking for some food, and they were going to be food to Jesus. And, and so it says in the scripture there in, in uh in verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples have been looking for something to eat. They return and are confused as to why Jesus is talking with this woman and why he, uh, or, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I'm not going to bag on the disciples, right, because um, I see too much of myself in them, so I'm not going to insult them because it would be like insulting myself. I think it's just so easy, you know, hindsight's 2020 to say, well, what's wrong with the disciples? Why didn't they get it? You know, I see myself in this passage. It's like, man, I've missed opportunities and everything. But it's good to learn from what they're experiencing, right? And they're off looking for food, and they're like, what, what's wrong with Jesus? Why isn't he eating lunch? Like, isn't that, the, isn't that more important? And they don't, they don't understand why he's talking with this woman. And earlier in the passage, it said that they marveled. They were just amazed that he's actually talking with this woman, which is a good teaching moment. And so they, um, so they come back with this I love Jesus' answer. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And here's the principle that Jesus is teaching us. He says, people on mission with Jesus thrive from engaging in God's work. They thrive from engaging in God's work. You see, they're less concerned about physical food and more concerned about spiritual fruit, and they thrive because of that. It's incredible. And that's what Jesus was saying. Jesus wasn't saying, I'm never going to eat lunch, right? Jesus ate lunch. He ate with his disciples. He cooked them breakfast. Jesus isn't anti-food, but what Jesus is saying, you know, there's something more important than food. And, and if you really want to experience all of life, the best that life has to offer with me, you're going to be thriving when you engage in the work of God. And that's what, that's what Jesus is saying here. I have food that you, you do not know about. You see, the disciples thought they were on a trip, but they weren't just on a trip, they were on mission. And sometimes we just think we're going through life you know, to get through life as Christians. But we're not just going to get through life and be a good Christian. We're on a mission, see? Our life is a mission. And every day is an opportunity to thrive in the work of God. One of the things that, uh, just as an, uh, to kind of explain this in a little different way, uh, I like to think of uh, life and experiences as uh, spiritual greenhouses. Now, I know I'm in a room with a bunch of farmers, and I'm just a dumb, you know, suburban boy. I don't know a lot about I've picked a few tomatoes in my day, and that's about it. 
I've walked through greenhouses, and so I know enough to be dangerous, so forgive my, you know, my naivety about this. But, um, but as I understand a greenhouse, right, it's, it's, a, it's a, a structure that's set up uh, to protect the plants from the elements so that they can grow faster and better in a shorter period of time. How am I doing? Any farmer there? Can you help me with that? Is that right? Okay. So, you see, here's the thing. Jesus wants to place us in spiritual greenhouses. He gives us opportunity to be in a greenhouse. He wants us to grow. He wants us to become more like him. The question is, uh, the fact is that sometimes we don't want to go there. We don't take the opportunity to enter in the greenhouse. We stay out in the cold, and it gets cold around here in DeKalb. I know that because I live not too far from here. And cold is not good for growth, not growing plants. So what does a spiritual greenhouse look like? You see, some of them we choose, and others are thrust upon us, right? Opportunities for spiritual growth, we can either, some, sometimes we choose them, and some are thrust upon us. Our son, when we were missionaries in Indonesia, was born with severe hydrocephalus. There was nothing we could do about that. And he lived 29 years severely and profoundly disabled. And for us, for us and our three daughters, one older and two younger, it was a 29-year and an ongoing four years later spiritual greenhouse. We learned and we grew so much from it. But you know what I saw? I saw so many people who had the same experience stiff-arm God. You see, and they didn't go in the greenhouse and learn what it means to see the presence of God in difficult health situations. And it broke my heart to see people walking through a similar experience full of anger and hate while we experienced the joy of the Lord and his peace and comfort in difficult circumstances. And that's something that was thrust upon us. We didn't choose that. I, didn't, I mean, I knew it was gonna, we had a daughter and we were going to have a son, and I didn't say, you know, I think it would just be great. Let's have a son with severe hydrocephalus. That'll be awesome. I didn't choose that. But God knew it'd be good for us. And, and it was. And I love my son. And he's in heaven, and I'm going to see him. I can't wait. See, that's a spiritual greenhouse. And he gives us other spiritual greenhouses. He gives us opportunities uh, to teach in Sunday school. And you're like, well, I, I don't know if I can teach. I don't know if they'll like what I have to say. I don't... And, and, but you know he's leading you to do it, and, and when you do it, it's like you grow through it, and you see God work, and you're like, this is awesome. So there's greenhouses that we choose. God calls us to tithe and to give generously, and it's an opportunity to be in a spiritual greenhouse because if we tithe and we give generously, then, then he provides for us, and he gives us peace in our finances like we never experienced when we were running it on our own. But we have to choose to enter into that greenhouse, right? We, it's not forced upon us. It's not auto-debited from your account unless you sign the document. He dares us to tithe. He invites us to open our mouths and share our faith with our neighbors. And we're scared and we're awkward and we don't know what we're going to say or how we're going to say it. And I'm probably going to sound stupid and I don't want to do it. But when we do, he uses it. And he says, he takes us and he grows us through choosing to do that. Choosing to walk with him in powerful ways. But we, sometimes we walk by spiritual greenhouses or try to escape them as soon as possible, staying in our own comfort zones. We have a team in Ukraine, and I was there visiting with them uh, last November. They're in the city of Dnipro. And uh, they're within, they've been within a few dozen miles of the front at various times during this war. But when the war first broke out, and it was still afar off, you know what all of our staff said? They said, we're staying. We're staying here with our families. We're staying here with our kids. And we're going to minister in this situation, come whatever may. That, that was their choice. That's how they felt God led them. And God has used them in a powerful way, uh, in an awesome way. And, and to date, the Russians have stayed dozens of miles away. There are bombs falling in their city. And uh, you know what? I get on Zoom calls with them. We've had the board of directors on Zoom calls with them. We've had other people on Zoom calls with them. And everybody says the same thing. They have such peace. They have such joy 
in the midst of that circumstance. There's bombs falling around them, and they're, they're confident that they're doing what God has called them to do, and they're thriving from engaging in God's Word. Are you thriving? Are you thriving by engaging in God's Word? Or are you stepping back from God's Word? Are you not engaging? Are you waiting for just the right opportunity? I'm just not sure I'm ready, or that type of thing. People on mission with Jesus thrive by engaging in God's work. I'll never forget a guy that was in my small group when I was pastoring, a young man. He had a couple kids, and uh, we all had kids at that time. Well, I still have kids, but they were, I had young kids as well. And I remember uh, talking with him. He was just so exhausted all the time. And I know having little kids can be exhausting, so we had our share. So we had three under four years old all at one time and one severely disabled all in the house at one time. So I, I, know, I know what it is to be sleep deprived with young kids. So I remember talking with him and uh, we, we got lunch together and everything. He just said, you know, I'm just so exhausted. He said, I just can't, I can't get involved in anything at the church. You know, my wife and I were just so exhausted. And I said, I said to him, I said, you know, I said, I'm not sure you're exhausted because I asked, kind of asked him his schedule and how, how they lived life, and he was getting home at 5 o'clock, and they watched the kids, and they sat around all, you know, all evening and, and this type of thing. And I'm not, I'm not judging, don't please, I'm not trying to counsel anybody here. I'm just telling you the conversation with Jeff. I said, you know, Jeff, I, I don't think you and your wife are exhausted because you have kids, young kids. I think you're exhausted because you're not involved in the work of God. And you're just sort of spectating. And, uh, I mean, you know, do whatever you want. I'm not trying to pressure you in anything. But I think what it is is you're trying to hold on to every moment with your kids and navigate everything, and you're not, you're not giving of yourself anywhere. And, and what you're trying to hold on to, you're losing. It's going through your fingers. And, and he's like, you know what? I, I think you might be right. And you know what he did? He started getting involved. He and his wife got involved in Awana, and they started volunteering and doing this type of thing. And, you know, six months later, you know, Jeff had the biggest smile on his face. And I said, what's, what's up, Jeff? I'm just not exhausted anymore. I'm thriving. I'm thriving because I'm engaging in God's work. You see, he was shriveling up because he was pulling back, and he thought, I just got to hold on to this. I just got to get through. I can't put myself out. But when he put himself out, he saw how God undertook for him and used him in a powerful way. That's what thriving and the power of God is. Are you thriving today, or what are you thriving on? Are you thriving on the work of God? Then the last thing, final principle that we see here. In verse, uh, verse 39 through 42, we see that the woman runs to her village and tells everyone uh, what she had learned and how she came to uh, know the Savior, the Messiah. And many believed because of the many uh, women's testimony, and they stayed, and many more believed. But look at verse 36, what Jesus says about this scenario in the harvest. He says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. You see, Jesus said sower and reaper may rejoice together. They will have great joy. And here's what I, here's what I say. Those who are on mission with Jesus, they enjoy the winds in the kingdom of God, or in God's kingdom. They enjoy the winds. There's opportunities to rejoice. You know, we're sitting there yesterday and we're listening to Pastor Ben in Myanmar and, and just almost like a passing comment, uh, he said, well, so far this year, 108 people have come to receive Christ. It's like, 108 people have come to receive Christ? That's awesome. That's your ministry partner. You get to share in that. You know what? They've gone from death to life and some of them are sharing with their family members and more fruit will be born. And what an opportunity to rejoice in the victory, in the winds of God's kingdom. We get to participate in all of this. So people who are on mission with Jesus, they have these three, four characteristics applying in their life. They love radically like him. They focus in on spiritual opportunity. They thrive from engaging in God's work. And they, they enjoy the winds in God's kingdom. I want to share with you one last story and then just a few thoughts to wrap up uh, on how to apply this. Um, there's a man named Deus. He and his wife own a small store in one of the poorest countries of Africa, in the country of Malawi, and sort of uh, south uh, or uh, east central Africa. 
own a little store in a village, little uh, market, very small. And uh, one day, uh, while Deus was out uh, with the tomato farmers, you know, picking tomatoes or getting tomatoes for the store, some people came into the store and asked his wife if they could leave a bag there. And she said, sure, you know, just put it over there. And she forgot to tell her husband about it, and the bag sat there for a couple of days. And uh, two days later, the police came. Uh, to they were investigating in the village, and they came to the store, and they looked around the, uh, the store, and they found this bag. They opened it up, and uh, there were body parts in the bag. And strange things like this had been happening, I guess, in the area uh, at that time. And so they arrested Deus immediately and some other men in the village and uh, charged them with murder. And Deus went to the Kasungu prison uh, 500 men in overcrowded block cells uh, get one little bowl of rice and soup a day for your meal. That's all the food that you get, and it's a terrible place. I've been there. Uh, but here's the worst thing about Kasungu Prison and being charged with murder in Malawi is uh, you wait. You could wait up to seven years to get your trial. It's not like an arraignment and uh, maybe you can get out on bail or a speedy trial. Seven years is the average wait time prison. This was depressing to Deus, and he was ready to take his life. He didn't want to exist in this place. It wasn't, life wasn't worth living. And One day there was a Bible study taking place in the courtyard, and the Bible study was uh, uh, on the verse that says, uh, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And he overheard that verse, and the Spirit of God worked in his heart, and he gave his life to Christ that day, and he became a believer. And thoughts of suicide went out the window for him, and, uh, and uh, he became a believer, and he experienced the radical love of God in his life, and then he began to show that love in this place that he did not belong because he had nothing to do with that murder. And there were murderers in that prison. So what did, what did he do? He began to grow in his faith, and he started going to Bible study regularly, and he grew in his faith. He became the leader of the Bible study, and then he became the leader of all the Bible studies, and he multiplied the Bible studies in this prison among the 500 men that were there, and people would come and go, and he'd invite them in, and he was very active, and his wife became a believer on her visits because he shared with her the power of Jesus and how it had changed his life. And four years, four months into his time, uh, he went before the judge. So he went a little early. He went before the judge. The judge looked at the evidence and said, this is all they have. You had nothing to do with this. You're released. And what did Deus do? You think he went, what in the world? This is so unjust and everything. I'm going to file a lawsuit and everything. He's like, he's like, no. He's like, this is awesome. This is great. Because now I can take my ministry back to my village and teach them what I learned about Christ. So he set up Bible studies in his village, and he's so thankful for the four years, four months of spiritual greenhouse at the Kasungu prison, and now he's leading Bible studies in a church in his village. And you know what? They got so big that they needed a place to meet, and you know, uh, he decided, you know, there's one kind of larger room. It's the courthouse in, in his area, and he, so he went to the judge. He said, would you mind... You don't hold court on Sundays. Could we hold Bible study and, and church in your courthouse? The judge says, sure, go ahead. So now he's holding church in the courthouse that sent him to Kasungu prison. What I would suggest to you that Deus understood from day one what it means to be on mission with Jesus, what it means to, be, to thrive in his work, what it means to see every circumstance in his life as an opportunity to spread the gospel. Are you on mission with Jesus this morning? You may say, well, what, what, what is that like? How do, how, do I, how do I get it? It sounds so out there, you know, and even some of the stories you're saying, they're so difficult. I, I, can't, I can't relate. Well, let me, there's a reason why I titled the message With Jesus on Mission. Because it's this. It's so, it's so simple that we miss it. It's about being with Jesus. You want to know what it's like, how, how to go on mission? It's a relationship with Jesus. It's having your devotions and listening for his voice. 
It's listening for him as you walk through your day. It's walking with Jesus. That's what the disciples were doing, right? They were walking with Jesus, and they were bumbling along, and hey, we bumble along. But Jesus got them in line. And you know what? They spent two days helping with the revival in those Samaritan villages and discipling people and probably healing people and telling them what they've seen about Jesus up to that day after they sort of missed it at first. And Jesus wants to do the same thing in our lives. As we bumble along with him, as we walk with him, he's going to say, hey, don't, don't miss this opportunity. Hey, don't forget about that. And he wants to walk with you and take you on mission with him. You see, it's responding, not initiating. And I know it's difficult for us, but it's responding to the call of God, not initiating. It's following, not leading. You see, all it is is following Jesus, it's being with Jesus. So will you go on mission with Jesus? Would this missions conference be a reminder to you of the opportunity you have to change the world that God has led you into? How, how do you go about this? Pray about it. Listen to Scripture. Read Scripture and listen to what it has to say to you. Share with others and pray with them about your mission and follow Jesus. There was something that handed out last night, and I don't know if we have these at the back, Larry. Uh, when it comes to missions, uh, there's a great number of partners in this church, and here is a how can I respond and get involved in nurturing your personal passion for missions. And these are excellent suggestions. If you didn't get this at the banquet last night, I would encourage you to get that um, and uh, pray through those opportunities and get connected in some way. You know, missions is big, but you can make it small by connecting with one partner here. Maybe today you could strike up a conversation with a partner and say, you know, I'm going to pray regularly for you. I want, a, I want a piece of the action where God is sending you, and I'm going to be a sender to that place and get connected and see what God does as you pray and as they report back to you. But get connected. Don't pass up this opportunity. You can take uh, one of these. Uh, these were the placemats last night. And uh, hang this in your office and pray for the missionaries that are a part of this church. I know they will appreciate that, and God will do a great work in your life as you go forward. With Jesus on mission. Are you, on, are you with Jesus on mission today? I pray that he will speak to you and lead you in the days to come and bring great glory to himself through you and through this church as a great to play that out. Let me just close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we could look at your word. We thank you for the lessons uh, that we can learn, the example of Jesus' life and, and the teaching that he gives us and what it means to be on mission. We thank you for this church and the focus that they have. We pray, Lord, that you would lead each of us in the path that you've set before us to embrace the mission you've given to us, and to see you work in our lives in a powerful way. And we'll give you the glory and the honor for that. In Jesus' name, amen.